Does the Bible teach prevenient grace? That is, does God offer a kind of grace to all people that neutralizes their sin nature so that when they hear the gospel, he or she can choose to believe Christ by an exercise of free will? Hi, I'm Bob Buchanan and this is Wisdom 8 to 8, where we're dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. Who are you who are so wise? A viewer wrote with a question about the doctrine of prevenient grace or preparing grace that was most prominently taught by John Wesley. It's a doctrine older than Wesley and it's still taught in many theologically Arminian churches today. Prevenient grace is defined as grace that precedes the gospel, preparing the sinner's heart to hear the gospel and choose to trust in Christ. However, an important aspect of prevenient grace is that it doesn't guarantee salvation. Prevenient grace only pre provides an ability, or maybe we could say the possibility, to choose salvation. An ability that was lost in Adam's sin, by the way. The sinner may reject the offer of salvation and continue to live in rebellion against Christ. Now, Wesley admitted that he was mystified by the human heart. And he said this, quote, I only assert that there is a measure of free will supernaturally restored to every man, together with that supernatural light which enlightens every man that comes into the world. The end of the quote. Now since Adam, all people have been born without the ability or the desire to choose God. Paul wrote in Romans 3:23 that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, according to Wesley, God countered this inability with the gift of prevenient grace, giving all people everywhere the ability to choose God. This means that the ultimate determination of salvation is a human decision to say yes or no to God. Now, there is one important area of agreement between Wesley and the Calvinists. Both believed in the comprehensive fallenness of all people. The Calvinist doctrine is called total depravity, and that doctrine, which is the T in the acronym TULIP, did not mean, even by Calvin, that sinful humanity was as sinful as it could be. It only meant that every part of the human being, all of our faculties, are touched by this corrupting power of sin. Our actions, our thoughts, our motives, our emotions, whatever makes us human beings, are all held captive to sin and in the power of sin. Both Wesley and Calvinists observe that sinful people can often be the most generous, kindest, and the most giving people we know. But it's not the outward activity by which we are to judge salvation. It's a matter of what the heart loves most. If people show tremendous kindness or are willing to die for another person, Unless they have trusted in Christ for salvation, they remain alienated from God and from the life of God, and they are, in fact, children of wrath. This condition is what must be overcome for salvation. Now, both camps do agree that sinners are slaves to sin, according to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, which says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But where Wesley parts company with a Calvinist understanding of salvation is that he believed any good that's in this world is due to the work of prevenient grace, which is present to some extent in every society, even those that are largely non-Christian. Author and professor Tom Schreiner points out a helpful way of understanding the, understanding the difference between Calvin and Wesley on this point. And here's what he writes, quote, in some respects, Wesleyans use the term prevenient grace in a way that matches the Calvinist term common grace. Now, if you've never heard of the term common grace, this was Calvin's way of saying that God restrains evil in this world by his sovereign rule over all things, keeping all people and societies safe from falling into absolute chaos and utter hopeless destruction. Author Sam Storms helps us to understand how common grace benefits all of us in everyday life. Author Sam Storms helps us to understand how common grace benefits all of us in everyday life. While humanity is totally depraved, he said, and deserving of God's wrath, God mercifully postpones his destroying wrath and graciously blesses all men, even apart from salvation. This is called God's common grace. Common grace includes all undeserved blessings that natural man receives from the hand of God. Rain, sun, prosperity, health, happiness, natural capacities, and gifts. Sin being restrained from having complete dominion. The doctrine of common grace explains how a man can be totally depraved and yet still commit acts that are in some sense good. But we must remember that common grace falls short of saving anyone. All salvation depends on the powerful work of the Holy Spirit applying the atoning death of Christ to the sinner for reconciliation with God. Now, in the previous Wisdom episode uh, from a couple of weeks ago, I explained four biblical texts that Wesley and others use for prevenient grace. They're advocating for that position by these texts. And so what I want to do here is to analyze those arguments. And in full disclosure, I am not persuaded by them. I am I'm calling on the clarity of Tom Schreiner, a New Testament scholar at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He was also my New Testament prof when I went to seminary. These four Bible texts are used by Arminians for their position. The first one that was used by Wesley was John 1.9, which says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Wesley believed that this light was the general prevenient grace that's given to everyone. And so what is this illumination that John is referring to? Is it, is it the general revelation of creation? Is it the inward illumination of the Holy Spirit that leads to salvation? Schreiner points out that the context of this verse doesn't refer to either creation or inward illumination, but to the light that came with Jesus who exposed the evil in the human heart. That's the context of John's gospel. John confirms that when he wrote in John 3.19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. In other words, the true light that has come into the world, that is Christ, exposes the moral and spiritual bankruptcy of the human heart. As a result, people shrink back, they turn away from that light because they are alienated from God 
and they want to continue in their evil ways. The second text that's used to support prevenient grace is from John 12, 32, where Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The argument here is that prevenient grace was granted in the atonement of Christ. Even uh, enough grace has been imparted to all people so that now they can choose whether or not to believe. But we have to interpret John 12, 32 by John 6, 37, which says, All that the Father has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. This text implies that not, on, not, that not all will come to Jesus, only those who have been given to the Son by the Father. God hasn't given the Son all the people who ever lived. He has selected some, and they are the ones who will come to Christ. And if we add John 6:44 into the mix, it says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. This drawing activity of God can't be used to support prevenient grace for every individual. The drawing of God is a powerful and, a, and is selective and unfailing. Even the word itself carries this understanding. This draw is an inward compelling power. Metaphorically, it means to be dragged, probably something like parents dragging kids to church. The word doesn't convey the drawing as against our will, but it's to tell us that it is a compelling, irresistible drawing to Christ. But a wonderful thing happens in the person's heart. By the time the regenerating power of the Spirit sets a person free from captivity to sin and shows the beauty of the light of Christ, they want to come to Him. And so John's idea of salvation isn't that God opens just the possibility, but He makes it effective to reach His desired end. Now, my personal disagreement with prevenient grace is right here. If human decision is the decisive act, then John is lying to us when he writes about Jesus in the first chapters, uh, uh, in the first chapter, verses 12 and 13. John wrote, to all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The decisive actor in salvation is God, not the sinner. The sinner does nothing but come to Christ with his or her sin. The way John and other writers use the word all is important for us to understand. In the context of John 12, Jesus isn't saying that all people without exception will come to him, but all people without distinction. He will draw Jews and he will draw Gentiles alike to himself. This is hard for the first Jewish disciples to get their minds around, but eventually they did understand. And we should be thankful that while salvation came from the Jews, it included us Gentiles. Now the third argument is from Romans 2 verse 4, and it could be a good argument for prevenient grace. It says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Couldn't this mean that sinners can repent if they want to? Well, you've probably had someone tell you uh, to let them know when Jesus is coming back so that they can accept him as their savior. 
And until then, they're just happy to have fun enjoying all the things that they've always wanted to enjoy. Well, it doesn't work that way. And so the answer is no. They won't want to accept Christ. The condition of sinners is that they have no desire to love God or to observe his commands. And just because God gave moral and spiritual commands to obey doesn't mean that sinners have the desire or even the ability to do so. He gave the commands because they are good and they should be obeyed because he is God. Not only are people unable to keep God's commands, they're also unwilling. And the biblical view of the human condition is that unbelievers are slaves to their sin. They have no desire, they have no taste for the things of God. Finally, Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Prevenient grace is largely based on an understanding of God as just and wise and merciful and loving. And indeed, God is all those things and more. But it is wrong to read into Titus the conclusion that God must offer salvation to prove that he is just and wise and merciful and loving. You may have heard someone say, God has to be fair. An argument like this solves lots of problems, like how can God command us to do something we can't do and then justifiably judge us for not keeping his commands? Well, this is where many, even Christians, stumble. The biblical writers had no problem and never tried to explain the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Human free will is the answer that many give that misunderstands this tension. Schreiner writes this, quote, those who believe that God must extend mercy equally to all are subtly falling into the trap of believing that God would not be good without showing mercy equally to all. This comes perilously close to the conclusion that God should show mercy to all to the same extent and that such mercy is obligatory. But if God should show mercy to all, then mercy is no longer viewed as undeserved." End quote. Advocates for prevenient grace read into the scriptures what's not there, mainly because it neatly solves so many logical problems it attempts to present God as just and loving and most of all fair. But the scriptures teach what theologians call irresistible grace. That is that the Holy Spirit never fails to bring those that he draws to Christ in faith. This grace frees sinners from the bondage of sin and turns them so that they can choose Christ. God's grace effectively works in the heart of the elect so that they can see the beauty and the glory of Christ and put their faith in him. Because God's choice lies behind our salvation, we can't boast before him that uh, we were noble or wise enough to choose him. We can only boast in the Lord who chose us to be his own. Now I want to close with a conversation that happened between Calvinist pastor Charles Simeon and John Wesley. It was originally recorded in one of Wesley's diaries that is dated December 20th, 1784. Simon went to Wesley and he asked him this, Sir, I understand that you are called an Arminian, and I have been sometimes called a Calvinist, and therefore I suppose that we are to draw our daggers. But before I consent to begin that combat, with your permission, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Pray, sir, do you believe, uh, do, you, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never 
have thought of turning to God if, if God had not first put it into your heart? Well, yes, I do, answered Wesley. Then Simeon asked another question. And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything that you could do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Well, yes, Wesley said, only through Christ. So, sir, said Simeon, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? Well, no, I must be saved by Christ from first to last, said Wesley. Simeon then answered, allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? Wesley answered, no. And Simeon then, well then, are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God? as much as an infant in his mother's arms? Yes, altogether, said Wesley. And is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom? Yes, said Wesley, I have no hope but him. Then, sir, said Simeon, with your leave, I will put up my dagger, for this is all my Calvinism. This is my election. This is my justification by faith. This is my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold and as I hold it, and therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be ground of, uh, grounds of contention between us, we will cordially unite in these things wherein we agree. Some have said that Wesley was just a confused Calvinist. Well, that's all for today. If you have any questions about the Bible or theology or discipleship, or even marriage relationships, please send them in. And thanks for joining me and Steve Dion. Um, always, uh, <laughs> God, I can't, why can't I just do the last sentence? You'll be of good cheer. <laughs> you can leave that in if you want. <laughs>